0: Hello, and welcome to the St Emeline's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley, and today I'm going to be taking you through the best of the blog from March 2019. A busy month, I'll tell you why in a minute, with some really good content and some really good trips and travels and conferences, which I suspect you may know about already, but I'll give you a little hint later on. So I'm going to kick off with... uh, I'm going to kick off with a post which I put together around the management of adult congenital heart disease. And this is really good fun to do. In essence, it came about because the hospital where I work in, in Verchester, if you like is what's known as a Level 2 Centre for Adult Congenital Heart Disease. And that's because in the UK, services have moved around and they've centralised into a small number of centres the surgical components of the management of adult congenital heart disease. And that means that in my part of the world, that's gone to Liverpool. Great centre, lovely people. Um, But we still have a large population of patients in my part of the world who we have to deal with. And there's been a national audit of this. And so it was a good time to go back and have a look about the way that we manage these patients in the emergency setting. Because a lot of the detail that's out there in the guidance is really aimed at chronic management and the surgical management of these patients. But actually, they turn up in the emergency department and like me, I suspect that if you see some of them, it's actually quite unnerving. They have complex medical histories, complex past lives, or complex surgical history, and often fairly unique pathologies and anatomies that have resulted from their disease. And they can be really quite difficult to manage. So I put a blog post together. I'm reasonably proud of this one, actually. So if you want to go and have a look at that, the first thing on there is a, a, a really a reviser of the different types of common problems that we'll see. So things like um, atrial septal defects, VSDs, ventricular septal defects, um, transposition of the great arteries and how it's been um, corrected. So things like switch procedures, tetralogy of Fallows, and then this group of patients who've effectively just got the one ventricle um, and, and things like FONTAN circulations, which are really challenging and can get you into quite a lot of trouble quite quickly, actually. And then what are this group of patients going to turn up in the ED with? Well, commonly uh, dysrhythmias, which may be really quite difficult to manage. Chest pain, although interestingly, um, the incidence of ischemic heart disease, with the exception, I think, of the post-switch patients from the transposition, actually isn't that much higher in ACHD patients. And then we've got the cyanotics, the the single ventricle patients and the ones with a right to left shunt, Um, the problems of endocarditis, which you should never get in this group of patients, and then some of the issues we have, which are, I guess, similar to other cases, so things like those with mechanical valves. And lastly, and I think very importantly, a bit of a discussion about how we manage the ACHD patient who comes in with a non-cardiac problem. So they've got a Fontan circulation and they've got appendicitis or they've got a pneumonia or they've got cellulitis or something like that. The bottom line for all of this is that these are really quite a difficult and complex group of patients to deal with. And from a thought perspective, I guess if these patients come in with a cardiac complication of their cardiac problem, we generally do get advice we'll certainly speak to our local cardiologists and actually the advice here and the advice nationally in the uk is you phone the achd center they've got 24 7 consultants on call and get advice on how to manage them and ideally before you actually do anything just a thought the ones i think are potentially going to slip through the net are the achd patients who turn up with a non-a with a non-cardiac problem Now, the advice for that group of patients is still the same. You should still discuss that group of patients with the ACHD centre. I mean, okay, if it's a cut the finger, no. But if they've got a medical problem or they're being admitted or they're having surgery or something like that, then really you do need to know about this and you do need to talk to them. If you are working in ED, I really would ask you to have a look at the stuff around Fontan circulations. Um, There's some really good anaesthetic tips and tricks there. So essentially the Fontan circulation works on venous return is based on their venous pressure um not so the blood going through the lungs is based on the venous pressure Um so giving them lots of peep CPAP, and bagging them hard and giving them diuretics ain't gonna make them any better um, and yet you know, she can do quite a lot of harm there Um so have a read of that it's one of those blogs which you put together and i learned loads by doing it and i'm going out and teaching as many people as i can about it as well so have a look at that Then there was a little top up again. as another top 10 trauma papers, which I did for the Trauma UK conference. Um, You've probably seen most of those discussed here if you have been on the blog before. But if you want a little top up from the Trauma UK conference, have a look at that. There's some interesting ones in there. Again, talking about the PAMPA trial, uh, talking about bougie use in the ED, talking about bag bag mask ventilation um, and bagging people during the period of apnea. Hypertensive resuscitation, which actually there is some evidence for, but probably not as much as I thought actually. So 722 papers looks at that. Only five RCTs of hypertensive resuscitation and trauma. Interesting. Um, There's a nice paper on the late presenting patient with a head injury um, from our colleagues up in Hull. That's a group, if you look at the data in most of the CT guidelines for head injury, they've excluded patients who present more than 24 hours. And it's always been a bit of a dilemma about what to do with them. There's a nice little paper here. It's a small it's a small paper, so it's it's not absolutely definitive. But in the whole Tron Centre, not dissimilar to where I am in Verchester, they found that the instance of significant findings actually as high in the group who presented after 24 hours as the ones who presented within 24 hours. So makes you think, doesn't it? Probably we can apply similar logic and similar decision. Well, not necessarily rules, but certainly decision processes to think about what to do with those um, patients okay so have a look at that one and some interesting stuff in there and of course i mentioned the zero point survey in that again which we're really pushing hard with because i think it is one of those things that can make incredible difference to your resuscitation remember situation team environment as the precursor to your primary survey we then got a, a really nice post from, and a really challenging post, I think, from um, our colleague, Stefan Bridgens, who uh, is uh, recently back from South Africa, now working in the Southwest, talking about uh, the need to volunteer responsibly overseas. Now, this was a really challenging blog, and we had some really interesting feedback. Uh, not entirely happy in all areas, really. What we see is... A lot of people with great intentions uh, going abroad and volunteering, and that's great. The point that Stefan's making is that that needs to be done within a system which has purpose, which has sustainability, and which is actually for the benefit of everybody. And there is a concern with a small number of people, perhaps, who... Uh, it's it's a difficult topic to, to to go through here, but are volunteering for as much their personal reasons as for helping other people. And that came out in a series of tweets, not related to the St Edmund site, but on one of our um, colleague foamed ed sites, where some of the behaviours of people who'd gone to a third world lower, sorry, who'd gone to a lower um, income country, lower middle income country, were... Um, Let's put it this way. It didn't look as if their motivations for why they were there were entirely honourable, in the words of uh, John Hines. So if you are thinking about volunteering abroad, and I think you should, I think it's a great thing to do. I think this is a really good post to have a look at. Some great contributions on there and a great discussion, actually on volunteerism from USEM with uh, Shweta Gidwani, um, Huling Harrison, Jennifer Hulse and Najib Rahman, which I think is excellent. If you're going to go abroad, I think you should probably watch that and have a think about it. Bottom line is we think St Emelin's working uh, with charities, working abroad and helping people is good, but make sure your motivations are honourable and do it as part of a system and not necessarily as an individual. We've then got one of the... One of the best presentations at St Emeline's Live last year from our colleague Kat Evans, who works in Mitchell's Plain in South Africa and does take people who volunteer to go out and work there and puts them into a system and works them really hard and gives them a fabulous experience. But this is a really good conversation and a really good presentation. we we'll put the lecture, and the video and the, the audio up on there about the challenges of working in really stretched environments. I mean, we have bad days in Birchester, but some of the challenges that Cap faces, particularly around trauma and also really interestingly, the toxicology, which she talks about there um, and the use of you know, really industrial levels of atropin to deal with some of the, um, some of the poisonings that they see over there is really worth a listen. So, um, If you're again, I think it links in if you're thinking about working abroad, if you want to see what it's like working in emergency medicine and other environments, then I would strongly recommend you listen to CAT and uh, give a plug also for the EM Fest, which was a conference held in South Africa in 2018. It's going to come again in 2020 in March, one of the best conferences I've ever been to, certainly one of the most fun, learned huge amounts and uh, it does a lot of great things. So if you are thinking of going to South Africa next year, then I would strongly recommend you tie that in. Then we've got a little mini podcast, really, one of our cans, critical appraisal nuggets on the use of p-values, myself and Rick Body, P-values come up all the time in the exam, guys. Um, if you're thinking of any exams around critical appraisal, it's a common question. Just get your head around p-values. There's a, a literally a less than 10-minute podcast, which you can listen to there, that'll take you through it and get you going. Um, then we've got Nick Smith. A relatively recent addition to the St Emlyn's team, a colleague in Manchester, a brilliant clinical educator um, and increasingly medical education expert and theorist, I've got to say, because he's doing some really great stuff for us. He's got one on dual coding, which um, what the hell is dual coding? Well, dual coding is about how we struggle to take in data from lots of different sources at the same time and make sense of it. And you will know this because of the work that I think people like Ross Fisher have done in presentations, whereby you can't read the PowerPoint slides at the same time as listening to the speaker and understanding it and comprehending it and writing it down and writing it on Twitter and putting it on a blog and writing your own notes. It just doesn't happen. So the reason why I think you should read this if you're a medical educator or a clinician, and all clinicians are medical educators, let's face it, is that If you want to get your message understood and heard when you're teaching or even when you're trying to make change happen in a leadership role, then the way that you present information and the way that you deliver it and allow people to consume it is going to make a real difference. So Nick's put this together. It's really nice. There's some top tips there on presentation skills and on how you present data. I'd strongly recommend you have a look at that if you're interested in the FOMED world, etc., Then there's a blog from Zaf Kasim, again, great friend of ours over in the US now, looking at Reboa. And this is really a post, it's a Journal Club post based on a paper that was published in JAMA Surgery, looking at the analysis of Reboa success rates, really, in civilian trauma, um, based on a US database. Now, The bottom line from this is that Reboa was associated with a higher mortality rate compared with a similar cohort of patients with no place into Reboa. Interestingly, because there's a lot of excitement about Reboa, I mean, crikey, it seems to be coming up all the time. It is still actually a relatively unproven technology. And Now, there is an RCT going on in the UK, which I think will help, um, but that's probably not going to report for the next few hours. And there is a lot of interesting debate in the background. I know I know quite a few people who have been involved in using Reboa and it's a little unclear in some of their heads and I don't use it. So this is sort of second, third-hand information, which is unquotable. So that's terrible levels of evidence. But some of the comments that I've had from colleagues say they, they too, are they're a little bit uncertain about whether we've got the right patient selected who are undergoing it on a regular basis and whether or not we're putting it in the right place and also whether or not It's just allowing people to survive, to get through surgery and then onto the ICU. But then, as we saw in that paper from Karen Brohi last month, whether or not they're just dying later on in the ICU. So I think the jury is out there. I mean, I think there are good pathophysiological arguments for the use of riboA, But this paper challenges that. However, Zaf, who does use riboA, puts a number of caveats on the paper. Which I think are important. Personally, I think the jury's still out. I don't think it's the panacea to uh, torrential bleeding that uh, some people think. Um, That's a little bit controversial, I'm sure. But you know what? Let's wait for some better evidence because that's what we want. We're evidence-based medicine practitioners. Then we got to smack. Okay, so that's why we've been a bit quiet on the podcast. Smack was and well, it has been for the last six years, a major focus of our work, really, the sort of annual pilgrimage to wherever it happened to be. This year, it was, of course, in Sydney, um, so it returned to its roots. And we've put up six blogs on the site, um, one for each morning, because the amount of content that we managed to get through on the three days of the main conference, plus, of course, the workshops, was just insane, actually. Um, What can I say? The detail is on there. Have a look at it. The conference itself was amazing. The setting was brilliant. The uh, social networking and the links that we made there were just remarkable. Um, is going to be incredibly sad to see it go. But it's, well, has it gone? It's going to reform, I suppose, in the form of Coda. And Coda is going to take the principles, the style, the messages, the reach, the engagement that SMAC has achieved and take that to a wider audience. What Code is also going to do is have a more of a focus on tackling major health concerns. So whereas Smack has organically grown its content around what we do, I think Coda has more of an emphasis on what we need. I don't think I'm a million miles away from it. What I see the function and the form of it in the future is I still think there will be a role, I'm pretty certain there's going to be content which will be very much applicable to those involved in emergency and critical care. Uh, but that may be in the form of workshops or in sort of side conferences to the main events. And the main events will be bringing larger groups of people together to tackle major health issues. And what are the things we're talking about? We're talking about things like vaccination. We're talking about things like climate change. We're talking about things about access to healthcare, inequality, those big issues, which I think the group of people who've been involved in smack need to engage with a wider audience to to bring a large group of people to make change on a on a grander scale is that ambitious yeah it's hugely ambitious actually um but look where they've come they've done amazing work over the six years um taken a lot of people with them they've made wonderful friends they've made a few enemies and that's fine because You can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs. So, smack was amazing. A wonderful send-off. We will miss it. But onwards and forwards to Coda. Which is where I'm going to leave it this week. It's a little bit longer than usual. It's going to be about 17, 18 minutes by the time we finish. And that's okay, because March was an incredible month. We'll be back again in April, of course. And I'm going to be releasing one of the other St Emelin's Live lectures on the podcast on video and on the blog of course and we're all into april and there's already some great content there so go and have a look and have fun enjoy your emergency medicine and we will see you well we'll hear from you soon have fun